Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 22. Um, sometimes I do like to give just an introduction before we turn to the text, and while you're doing that, I'll, I'll kind of give uh, an idea to direct your minds. Uh, we're very thankful that there are some parts of Scripture that are very easy to understand, uh, that we can go to and kind of reread and memorize and uh, meditate on in our hearts, and they provide much encouragement and probably very easily so. Isaiah 22 is not one of those chapters. I suspect this is not one of those chapters that anybody in the room has memorized, uh, as it is um, very, very challenging. Uh, I would encourage you to pay attention, and God willing, God willing, about 35 minutes from now, it should make a bit more sense, I hope. That's our task. Isaiah 22, this is the word of the Lord, and it's perfect. The problem in this equation is not the word, the problem is us. So let us submit ourselves before God's word. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What do you mean? You've gone up, all of you, to the housetops. You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. You're slain or not slain with the sword, or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together without the bow. They were captured. All of you who were found captured, sorry, who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Therefore, I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, a battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He's taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem, and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness, wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep and eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die says the Lord God of hosts. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to this steward, Shebna, who is over the household and say to him, what have you to do here? And whom have you here that you've cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself on the rock. Behold, the Lord, Lord will hurl you away violently 
Oh, you strong man, he will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into the wide land. There you shall die. There shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. And, she, and he shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house. The offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. And that day declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place, it will give way. It will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken." All Scripture is inspired, which means it's good and right and true. We just have to figure out what it means. Father, would you please speak? As you have spoken in the reading of your word, would you be so generous as to speak in its preaching? We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, I'm assuming many of us in the room have had this kind of experience. I mean, I think most of you know the woes that I have in terms of cooking, Namely, if I do it, don't eat it. <clears throat> but many of you probably have had this experience at some point in your cooking career uh, where you made something, maybe it was cookies, maybe it was brownies, maybe it was something else, I don't know. You put it into the oven, everything looked right, it's perfect, you're all excited, you're looking forward to your you know, chocolate chip cookies with a little bit of ice cream on them or whatever else it is. And you pull it out and you're like, eh, it doesn't look the way I was expecting it to not at all the way it was expecting it to. The cookies turn to goo, I don't know, whatever else it is, and perhaps it's not quite that bad, and so you decide that you're going to brave it and try it anyways, and you eat it, and you take a bite, and you're like, mm, yeah, that's not right. I know that's not right. I don't know why. Maybe you're, if you're really good, you can actually stop and think, and you're like, oh, oh, <laughs> it's because I left out the baking powder. Or I left out the baking soda, or maybe I forgot the eggs. Ooh, that's terrible. Maybe I didn't use sugar, I used salt instead, I don't know. (laughs) But you have that moment where you can kind of go, this thing that I was looking forward to enjoying just ain't right. This thing that I was looking forward to consuming, this thing that I I was looking forward to the pleasure of this thing, there's one element that's not quite right. And it ruins the entire lot, right? You forget the chocolate and the chocolate chip cookies, you use raisins instead. Ruins the entire thing. You got to just throw them all away because raisins are gross. (laughs) We get to Isaiah chapter 22, we have kind of that similar kind of moment. It begins in a way that is wonderfully hopeful and optimistic. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. 
That is a wonderful kind of opening grand statement about uh, God's people and God's place. You remember Jerusalem is up it's, uh, on an elevated mountain, a low mountain-ish, and would overlook a valley kind of in front of it. And now here you have Isaiah kind of stepping into his ministry. He, you, know, you can kind of imagine him stepping onto kind of one of the overlooks off the edge of the mountain and then beginning to prophesy for the land of Judah, for Jerusalem, for God's people and God's land out in front of him, the valley of vision, the valley where he sees God's will worked out, the valley where he gets to know God's mind, where he gets to see God's view for his own people. And if you were to kind of think through the larger context of the Scriptures, you'd be like, man, this is exciting, (laughs) This is where we get to see God's prophecy for how he's going to bless the Jews, how he's going to bless Jerusalem, how he's going to bless Judah, how he's actually even going to fix Israel as a whole. I mean, we've been in this book so far dealing with so many terrible, terrible things where judgment upon everybody and judgment upon everybody, and here we have this moment to catch our breath to see the beauty and the glory of God, to see His love worked out on His people. In fact, I actually don't normally do book recommendations during the middle of a sermon, but I'm going to do one today. Right? Many of you have actually seen this book. It's been very popular for the last 15 years or so in the church called The Valley of Vision. An editor went through a lot of the Puritans and collected a lot of Puritan prayers and put them together in a book for those of us that struggle to pray, and we struggle to think the thoughts of God, and we struggle to verbalize our hearts well. You have a book of old prayers that you can read through to see who God is and to pour out your heart in front of Him. That's what you think is supposed to happen in chapter 22. It's this moment of connection where God and His people are united and connected. Only there's one ingredient missing, and it ruins the whole thing. There's one major ingredient missing in that relationship, in that equation, and it fouls up the entire chapter. The entire thing. Rather than the valley of vision becoming a place where people meet God, meet Yahweh, meet the covenant-keeping God, the God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, the triune God, rather than being the place where they meet with Him, it's become the place where they ignore Him, where they forget about Him where they overlook him. He's gone from their minds. There's five illustrations here that we're going to look at. These warnings that are given to us, God's people, those called by the name of the triune God. Things that it's so easy for us to get preoccupied with, to to look at and to forget to look at the living and true God. Rather than being in relationship with Him, rather than being preoccupied with the valley of the vision of the beauty and character and work of God, things that we grow distracted by. Well, it starts immediately. That's the opening salvo. What we have here described in verses 1 and 2 and then into really beginning of 3, 
is a struggle that the people of God have had. Is here in this time and place and this location where they are supposed to be the people of the triune God, where they're supposed to know the triune God instead, they are a people that have kind of become, we might even say, self-congratulatory in their victory. What do you mean, you people? The language here is probably a little stronger than that. What's wrong with you people? The old R.C. Sproul meme. What do you mean, people? That you've gone up, all of you, to the housetops. It's really a citywide house party. It's a block party, really, for all of Jerusalem that's being described. Everyone's gone to the housetops, and everyone's shouting in excitement, shouting in victory, shouting in joy. It's become one great and grand party. In fact, so great, it's this tumultuous city. The city's in chaos because they're celebrating. They're, they're so victorious. They're, they've become an exultant, overwhelmingly excited, celebratory town. But yet, interestingly, throughout the entirety of the Scriptures leading up to this point, and then everything after that further confirms, that for God's people, every victory, every victory is connected to His presence. Right? For God's people, it's impossible to separate those two things. We can't speak of our victory and our God as being two separate entities, two separate things that don't kind of coincide together. In fact, throughout the entirety of the Scriptures, our victory is really the result of His character, of His presence, of His person, and of His work. And interestingly, already in chapter 22, we have a a, a critique given against the house of Israel, against God's people that are saying, look, you're celebrating. You're rejoicing. You're partying. You're overwhelmingly excited. And you know what? There's a key element that's missing. You forgot the eggs and the chocolate chips and the cookies. You forgot the sugar and the cake. You forgot something. And it's going to ruin the entire thing. In fact, actually, you've forgotten your God. They've become so overwhelmed with their victory of whichever one it is. Commentators don't actually have a date for this passage. We don't exactly know where it goes in the history of the church. I mean, we know when Isaiah labored, but we don't know where in his ministry because he ministered for a long time in very significant parts of history. But you have a people that are so excited that they forget their God. That, I think, is actually a a bigger danger than we might realize. If you actually read through the entirety of the Bible, read through your church history sections of the Bible, it's this constant and reoccurring theme that is really, honestly, a bit unnerving. The frequency that we see God's people be victorious, achieve some great milestone, be heroic, have some great and wonderful moment of victory, and then the next step is a misstep. The next step is the one that ruins them. The next step is the one where they sin. It's the, ne- it's the next, it's crazy. How quickly those things go hand in hand. Early church history, we have in Acts where you have a a couple that decide they're going to give a lot of their money to the church. Praise God for that. 
They walk in, they go to give all of their money to the church, and they've kept a portion for themselves. And when questioned about that, that was their money. They could give their money however they wanted to give. But when questioned about it, they lie. And you're like, oh, so close. Great victory, followed by great sin. In fact, actually, God kills them for it as part of their church discipline. Isaiah 22, Ananias and Sapphira, so many other places through the scriptures, we have these great moments in church history to learn from. The danger of being so captivated by the victory that we forget the victor. I mean, it would be very easy for us, isn't it? I mean, that's how I started our finished announcements this morning, wasn't it? And we want to give thanks to the Lord because we have a season of great victory in this church. Really interesting, I mean, it's the weirdest thing to say, I mean, considering I mostly died through it, but since COVID started to today, this church has been in nothing but a season of victory. Now, there's been tears and there's been trials, and like I said, I spent a month in the hospital mostly dead, but the Lord has blessed us. I mean, we've more than doubled in size. Our giving is through the roof. We're watching people's lives be changed. We're watching sin being brought to the surface. We're seeing repentance for sin. We're having hard things that happen as well. We entered into our first season of prayer and fasting as a congregation. There's so many things that God is doing. So many of them I can't even talk about publicly. And it would be so easy for us to immediately get so excited about the victory, that we forget the victory is designed to point us to someone else, isn't it? It'd be so easy for us to talk about our debt reduction and and to be excited in terms of dollars and to be excited in terms of a bank account instead of being reminded that this is God at work. And he's showing us his love. And interestingly, how is he showing us his love? It's largely through the people sitting beside you. It'd be so easy for us to be victorious for a spell and grow complacent. Verses uh, 1 and 2 really highlight the positive side of it. You have this moment in history where they're being victorious and forget about God. Well, that changes in verses 3 through 8. There's a prophecy that comes that it's not going to stay that way forever. Yeah, Jerusalem will be victorious for a time, but destruction's going to come. And the valley of vision that's supposed to be this place where you meet God and see his beauty and his glory and his grandeur and his character, verses five through eight, becomes the place where you see the invading armies. And that's horrible. So that you could stand out on the, uh, you know, the walls of Jerusalem and look out over the valley. And rather than seeing the blessings of God, you see the chariots and the horsemen of the enemy. Also, just as a reminder, anytime you see chariots, that should be the scary thing. Uh, That was their version of what we might call like nuclear warfare today. Um, Throughout much of the times in which the Bible was written, armies with chariots never lost um, because chariot was the largest military um, and most powerful military uh, thing in existence. There was very few ways that you could actually defend it. Um, One of the only ways that you really could do well uh, was to send a female horse to the battlefield. So all the male horses pulling the chariots got distracted and decided they no longer wanted to fight and wanted to go be friendly. Um, they'd have to cut them into pieces and leave their pieces all over the battlefield in order to get the male horses ready to fight back. It's absolutely horrible. And there's a bit of information for the day. By the time we get to verse 8, though, 
it's changed. This valley of vision where we're hoping to see God's blessing, where we're hoping to see God's victory has become this place of destruction. It's become this place uh, of brokenness. It's become this place of combat and warfare. And it's the point where, uh, in fact, actually, it's being described as this tremendous military encampment. You have this massive army that's laying siege to Jerusalem, and they have the latest military uh, equipment, they have the latest military technology, and in fact, it would look like Jerusalem has no chance to win. This is kind of uh, indicative of a problem that's so great it cannot be conquered, a problem so great that it cannot be overcome. And verse 8 and through 11 really show uh, the second kind of danger that we're going to see in the passage. Notice, I read it, you might have caught it with your ears, what word is the reoccurring word in those verses. It's actually really a compound grammatical construction, you plus a verb. He's taken away the covering of Judah, verse 8. The Lord has taken away the protection of Judah, and now the enemy has come and destruction is coming. And what happens? In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. You saw breaches in the city. You collected the waters. You counted the houses. You broke down. You made the reservoir. You did not. You did. You did. You did. You did. What you have here is a people that have suddenly been confronted with a very big and very great problem, and their solution to the problem is self-reliance. Their solution to this massive army in front of them is to do all of the right things minus the one big ingredient. Look at what they do. It's actually good. Verse 8, you you look out over the valley of vision. You see the armies in front of you. You take inventory of what their weapons and technologies were. You realize, okay, the major weakness that Jerusalem has, everyone would have known, was a a water source. It's a problem they had been in process of correcting for a long time. And in fact, actually, what it ended up being, the solution was like a 1,700-foot tunnel carved through uh, solid stone in order to get a reservoir to kind of pump water into the city. Uh, The water was the struggle. And so what do they do? You saw the problems with the city were many. So what did you do? You took the waters in the lower pool and you counted the houses, you broke down the houses and you used the stones of the houses to build up the wall and then you made the reservoir so that you could get water. You readied the city for battle. This is good military uh, practice. Shore up your walls, load up on water. So when the siege happens, you got a way to protect yourself from the enemies and you got enough things to drink so that you don't die of dehydration. But again, this reoccurring theme there at the end of verse 11, the missing ingredient, the piece of the puzzle that's not there, the, the thing they're forgetting. You didn't look to the Lord who did it. You, you're, not, you're not looking to the Lord. You're not considering His plans. You're doing all of the right actions, but forgetting the God who is in charge. I think also maybe perhaps for us this might be a tremendous damage, uh, uh, danger, I mean, uh, particularly for those of us that are uh, higher-functioning people, which is most of us in the room. Right? Usually the higher-functioning human you are, I tend to think the bigger the danger is on this one. Because when we're confronted with a problem, how do we solve problems? Gather intel on the problem, 
Evaluate its strengths and weaknesses. Look for solutions. Evaluate the pros and cons of solutions. Find the best solution and then implement that solution. Do course corrections along the way and improve that solution until it comes to its natural. I can solve any problem that way, right? I can solve any problem. What we're doing, again, is the same danger, particularly for high-functioning people, is that we solve all of our problems. We solve our problems. You realize at this point in the chapter, Israel has not looked to their God once. They've not looked to their God when they've been successful and victorious. They've not looked to their God when they've had siege laid upon them uh, and they need help. They have not looked to their God at all. And in fact, actually, 12, 13, and 14, third thing, when the challenges get even bigger and it looks like trouble is going to happen, what do they do? Verse 13, they go out on a good note, have a big old party so that as the siege is getting ready to take place and destruction is getting ready to happen, kill oxen, slaughter sheep, get uh, meat cooking, uh, bust out the wine, let us eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. I had a good run. I'll enjoy this life. Right? This is the ancient Near Eastern version of YOLO, that horrible, horrible, horrible idea. Awful, disgusting, terrible thing. But this idea of like, eh, I'm, I'm going to enjoy the life for what it is. Had a good run. And yet again, they do not look to the Lord. They've not looked to their Lord in their victory. They've not looked to the Lord in their struggles. They've not looked to the Lord even at the end of their life. Verses 15 through 19 with Shebna. Here we come to the fourth. Shebna is not looking to the Lord even as he deals with the idea of glory. Shebna has been made um, the steward over the city. He's the guy who's kind of running the show uh, for the king. He's the one who's in charge of it all. And so what he's done is a very non-Jewish thing. He's not, uh, as best we can tell from uh, the Jews, he's an outsider, we probably guess, but he started building himself um, uh, a tomb. It was a thing that Jews didn't do. They weren't buried that way. They were taken care of differently. But instead, he's uh, much more like the Egyptians, actually, begun to build uh, this kind of carved structure that would house his body when he went into the afterlife so that it would show his glory and his greatness and his grandeur. Look at me. I am the Lord of Jerusalem. I will be buried in greatness, and everyone will know of my glory. That's in essence what he's doing. He's trying to call attention to himself. He's trying to get everybody to look at him, to be everybody to pay attention to him. And interestingly, um, the Lord says, no, stop, no. Instead, what I'm going to do is just basically take you like a ball, put you in a sling, spin you around, and just fling you as far away as possible. Just get rid of you. Just dispose of you. Just be gone. Throw you away. And instead, I'll replace you with Eliakim. Okay, great. Verse 20, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, a guy that we think this would be our good guy, right? And look at what follows. Verses 20 through 24, really 25, 24, it's positive after positive after positive after positive. Here's the guy. This is the hope. This is the solution. I'm going to take your robe and put him on uh, Eliakim. 
and take your sash that ties up the robe, put it on Eliakim. He's going to have your authority. He's going to be the guy. Then he's going to be like a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's going to be like the king. He's going to have uh, the key of the house of David. He's going to look like the king. He's going to look like the part. This is the guy that we're hoping for. He's going to rule with strength when he opens and closes things. It's binding. And in fact, actually, verse 23, uh, he's going to be like if I put a hook in the wall. Like mounted a, a, a peg in the side of the wall that you can hang things on. And he's going to be such a strong peg that's hung on the wall, like a, a coat hook, that I'm going to hang on him everything in Israel. I'm going to hang on him everything in Israel. I'm going to hang on him uh, the, the, the royal line, the royal family, the messianic promises, uh, all of the vessels, the, the worship of God, even the, uh, the, the, the Everything, temple, tabernacle. The problem is, verse 25, he's not going to be strong enough to hold it. Eventually, that, that hook on the wall is going to tear down, and all the stuff's going to fall, and it's going to break, and it's going to be destroyed. And again, you have a nation that's not looking to the Lord. That, that's really the kind of resounding theme of 22. All of Isaiah 22 is about a nation that does not look to God when they're victorious that does not look to God when they're in difficulty, that does not look to God when their life is at an end, that does not look to God in dealing with their own successes and glories. And even at the very end, they look to a human king instead of a divine king. They they refuse to interact with God. And I think perhaps, maybe for some of us, that might actually be a warning that we need to hear. And there are two types of people particularly that I would like to give that warning to. One, I would like to give that warning to the children of the church. You see, children of the church, and I'll let you know a little secret, I am a child of the church. My parents got converted when I was about that big. And I've spent basically my entire life since I was about that big in this denomination I've been PCA my whole life. So I remember what it's like to sit in church and to grow up listening to sermons. I did it about 20 minutes that way. I remember. But I also remember what it's like to hear it and not pay attention. I remember what it's like to have those truths of the Bible and to believe them in concept but to never let them impact the heart in a way that makes it warm. To never let it define who I am and how I am. To never let that relationship be rich and full. And to the children of the church, that would be my big warning for you. You see, I've said it this way before, but salvation isn't done by kind of association. Meaning, you don't get saved by your parents. You don't go to heaven based on your parents or because you go to a good church or because you hear preaching. We all go to glory in Christ and in Christ alone. The warning I have for you children is that you grow up in a church that talks about Jesus, but you never know him. Likewise, not just for the children, but for the adults. You know I'm a child of this area. I I grew up in the South. I know cultural Christianity. 
monocultural Christianity. That type of Christianity that brings you into a room like this because there's an event, because people are here, because it's exciting, because we have a group that's growing, because we're going to have to build another building soon. We don't have enough chairs for bodies. Praise God. What a wonderful thing to have. But to be drawn to the pleasant people, to be drawn to the sweet friendship, to be drawn to an opportunity to sing in public without it being weird or making us look strange, to be drawn to people to help us raise our kids and to deal with the times when we're sad, to be drawn to people who help bring us food when we've had surgery and we're hurting. But the danger to miss the key ingredient of knowing God. Knowing God. That's, I would say, in many ways, the great plague of the South. I mean, we have a lot of other failings, a lot. But I suspect the greatest of them all is a brand of Christianity that is wonderfully busy and wonderfully godless. Because the interesting thing is really the, the change, the contrast to what Isaiah brings to the table. He's a, such an intriguing contrast in this chapter. There's really two parts where we get to see kind of what was supposed to happen. Verse 4 is the first. Verse 4 is where he's begun to see this vision of a people that do not know the Lord, a people that do not think about the Lord, a people that do not delight in the Lord, a people that know not God, but are called by His name. And so verse 4 produces grief. Look away from me. Don't, don't look at me. Don't consider me. Don't comfort me. Don't console me. Don't come and say it's going to be all better. Let me cry my tears. Let me weep these bitter tears. Do not comfort me the concern, the destruction of these people that know not the Lord. Again, verses 12 and 13, the contrast here is not just weeping for those that know not the Lord, but instead, verse 12, really the response to sin. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping, called for mourning, called for baldness. Some of you are like, yes, finally. That's not genetic baldness. What this is is the type of grief that is so overwhelming and so comprehensive that you would shave your head to show how sad you were, to show how much it had impacted your life, how broken you were, how overcome and distraught you were. Shaved head, a shaved face, wearing uncomfortable, miserable clothing. Grief. I think it's interesting that one of the markers of robust Christianity is grief. Sadness over the right things. Sadness over sin. I'll end with this. 
It's intriguing to me that the Lord Jesus, when he begins his ministry, begins his first sermon largely with an explanation of this very reality, that one of the markers of what his people will look like is they will be a people that are not always happy, but will be marked by grief. They're going to have a poverty of spirit. They're not going to be overwhelmed with happiness. They're going to mourn and need comfort. They will be those that will be meek and broken. And part of that is because they will be those that understand what sin is and how it hurts and the consequences of it and when we do it and it will make us sad. And rather than just kind of gritting our teeth and going through, you know, kind of grin and bear it and just keep chugging along, we will be those that weep our way to the Lord, that weep our way to our Savior and say, this is a problem we can't fix. Sin is a problem we can't correct. It's a, it's a problem that we can't overcome. And so we need a Savior. We need Jesus. I know, it's why some of you, I think, probably love these confessions of sin that we pray every week. And perhaps some of you might be a little bit of a struggle. Because every one of them has in it, in some fashion, that note of grief, that note of sorrow, that I hate sin, and I hate my own and I hate yours, and I'm sad. And the only hope in life and in death, the only comfort is that Christ can fix it, even when we cannot. Dearest friends, might it be that we're not like anything that I would try to bake, ruined, because we're missing the one key ingredient. Father, thank you for your word, even when it's really hard, and even when it hurts our feelings. And Lord, we ask that you would keep us from being those Christless Christians that are not Christians at all. May we rest in you. For Christ's sake, amen.